Thanks for checking out this sermon from Redemption Church in Seattle, Washington, where we are enjoying Jesus, loving people, and making disciples. If you'd like to learn more about Redemption, you can go to redemptionseattle.com. Or better yet, come be our guest on a Sunday here in Green Lake. My name's Alex. I'm one of the pastors here, if you're new, and um, I'm excited to be walking through the scripture that Kendra just read for us. So if you have a Bible or app on your phone, uh, go ahead and flip there or scroll there uh, to Mark chapter 10, verse 35 to 45, where we're going to be today. And um, as Drew just mentioned, next week we're going to kick off the book of Acts. And so it's the Acts of the Apostles. It's the history of the, uh, of the beginning of the the New Testament church. And so uh, the book of Acts is actually two parts. The author is Luke. And so he wrote the first volume, the gospel of Luke. And then the second volume is the book of Acts. And so if you want to familiarize yourself with the writing of Luke, writing style, tone, and aim, and so on, uh, read the gospel of Luke first. So it sets you up for the book of Acts. So if you read it this week, uh, if you read about three or four chapters a day, you'll cover the entire Gospel of Luke this week, and that's set, that would set you up well for, for next week. So today, we are wrapping up our short three-week series that we were doing on the outward disciplines of the inward heart, and we looked at uh, silence and solitude, uh, and now we're jumping into, in, into serving. Last week, Drew preached on the discipline of submission. And so when we talk about serving, um, do you know the difference between serving and being a servant? It seems like a, like, isn't that the same thing? And I would have gone, yeah, it sounds like the same thing. Having just read Richard Foster's book, um, he pointed out that there is a profound difference between an act of service and becoming a servant. Here's what he says. And he's commenting on our hesitance to serve. He says this. The hesitancy is prudent since it is wise to count the cost before plunging headlong into any discipline. We experience a fear that comes, out of, that comes out as something like this. If I do that, people will take advantage of me. They will walk all over me. Right here, we must see the difference between choosing to serve and choosing to be a servant. When we choose to serve, we are still in charge. We decide whom we will serve and when we will serve And if we are in charge, we will worry a great deal about anyone stepping on us, that is, taking charge over us. And catch this, this is where it gets really good. But when we choose to be a servant, we give up the right to be in charge. There's great freedom in this. If we voluntarily choose to be taken advantage of, then we cannot be manipulated. When we choose to be a servant, we surrender the right to decide who and when we will serve. We become available and vulnerable. See the difference? When you choose to serve, especially in a cause-oriented city like Seattle, it's like I can volunteer this hour, at this time, at this place, for this person, for this specific thing, and I can tick a box. I can choose to do an act of service. Whereas in becoming a servant, you relinquish all your rights, and then all of a sudden, you're no longer in control. Jesus calls us not just to one-off acts of service, but to embrace an entire identity and a lifestyle of becoming servants in the truest sense. So, when we say the word disciplines, we're talking about intentional spiritual practices surrounding self-denial and following Jesus into what he calls 
the abundant life. And I know the word disciplines doesn't strike many of us today as something that we naturally would equate to spirituality, especially in Seattle. Um, That is, if you ask people in Seattle today, it is not uncommon to hear something to the effect of, I'm spiritual, just not religious, which kind of means something to the effect of occasionally I experience an existential moment of gratitude, usually around Christmas time, um, and that, that, that's part of my spirituality. Or I'm on a hike and I look at a landscape and I feel some kind of strange connection to nature all of a sudden, and I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. I don't have disciplines built into my life that would actually be involved in my spirituality. But when you look at the Christian church and how the Christian church has always talked about how we grow as disciples of Jesus, it's through these things called disciplines. And it's in the space of practicing our disciplines that actually, when we practice our disciplines, whether it's serving or fasting or giving or praying, when we practice our disciplines, that actually creates a lot of elbow room for God to move in in the mundane. Does that make sense? The discipline, like if you go and fast this week, you may not have an existential moment where you really sense the spirit of God moving in your life. You might not. In fact, you maybe probably won't. Have you tried fasting? And you go, I don't know what today's supposed to be doing. I'm just hungry. I'm trying. (laughs) What was that about? Well, that was just setting up for the next day for God to speak to you. Oftentimes, our disciplines are preparation for what God's going to do within a few short days. Does that make sense? Right now, you are precisely where you are in your faith because of what you've practiced up to this point. It's very simple. You are as deep with God and as close to God as you've tried to become. God's made himself available, known in history, in the person and the work of Jesus, and now even presently indwells us as Christians. God's not holding out. He even wrote a book. It's unbelievable. And not only did he write a book, he put us together in which we could experience Jesus constantly. We are as deep in our intimate relationship with our creator as we want to be. The disciplines speak to that reality. God is not holding out. Does that make sense? All right. So when we think about this discipline of serving It's something that's not just a one-off thing. Jesus talked about it constantly. He said in Matthew 10, if you lose your life, you'll find it. Later on, the Catholic priest, um, St. Francis of Assisi in the 12th century, he picked up on the same theme and talked about it often on this upside-down nature of God's kingdom. This is what he taught early believers to pray and think like. He said, it is in the giving that we receive It is in the forgiving that we are forgiving. It's in the dying that we're born to eternal life. It's in this radical place of just self-denial that doesn't necessarily look like massive acts of heroic philanthropy. A lot of times, it's in the daily mundane task of surrendering to Jesus and doing the simple thing of looking after your neighbor's well-being. 
And so a life of self-denial is not something for Christians to practice 2,000 years ago or even 1,000 years ago with St. Francis. Rather, it's for us even right here, right now in Seattle. You see, what was true 2,000 years ago and what was true 1,000 years and what was true 500 years ago is still true now. That's because truth doesn't have an expiration date. The gospel is not going to just become untrue tomorrow. It still is. And here's what I've become convinced of, is that once the penny drops and you actually believe that God is for you and not against you, it is precisely in that moment that we actually lay down our rights, our fears, and surrender to his call in our lives to walk in joyful obedience. It's in that moment when you recognize that God doesn't have a grudge against you. That's when the disciplines become desirable. And yes, God could scream, shout, shake the earth, and scare us all into a life of serving and surrender and all those things. But that's not the heart of our Heavenly Father, is it? It's his kindness that leads us to repentance. It's his gentleness that makes us take another step today. It's why you're still a Christian after 10 years. It's not because he's shaking the earth and scaring you to death. You're a Christian because somehow you still believe that God is still fond of you. And he is. That's so great. I'm already stoked. So let's just pray real quick. Um, and we'll walk through this scripture. Heavenly Father, it is good to be in your presence now. Thank you for your warm welcome. Thank you that it is your kindness that does lead us to repentance. Thank you for the fact that we are safe and secure in you. Today, would you work within each of us as individuals, and not only as individuals, but in our congregation as a whole. We thank you for what you're going to do in the next few moments, and we pray today that we, what, it, what we learn today and grab onto in your word would bear fruit in years to come. So we pray all these things in our King, in the name of our King who serves, Jesus. Amen. All right. So let's do it. Mark chapter 10, verse 35 to 45. Um, it's, it's in the gospel of Mark, and this is important, by the way, when we talk about the discipline of serving, uh, that we remember that this is rooted in this thing called gospel. Your Bible is arranged according to genres, like a library, or when you go to Barnes and Noble, you'll see different genres of books, right? And as you look around, the Bible's arranged like that. We have a law prophets, wisdom literature, right? Uh, then we get into the gospels itself, then the book of Acts, history, then letters, and then it ends with apocalyptic stuff in the book of, right? So we've got these genres. These genres are important because when you grab onto a genre, you're going, okay, now I have a particular set of lenses through which I'm supposed to go about interpreting what's being communicated, right? So when you open up the gospel, which is a word that means good news, and you find this thing called self-denial and serving that feels like bad news, but if you read it in light of it actually being good news, all of a sudden we, it puts it in its proper context. Does that make sense? That there's not a, a religion called grace alone, and then there's this other religion in the Bible called uh, deny yourself. They're, they're one and the same. And once we understand that we are saved by grace alone and God does have good news for us, that we see these disciplines, this lifestyle of becoming a servant is actually just 
part and parcel of what it is to actually comprehend the good news. Does that make sense? Okay, so Mark 10, verse 35, it's a powerful passage involving the sons of Zebedee. All right, so here it says, uh, and James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. <laughs> Don't you just love these guys? All right, so it's James and John, they're the, they're the brothers, uh, the sons of thunder is what Jesus nicknamed them. Like, like it sounds like a motorcycle gang or pro wrestling tag team or whatever, but it's a, the, the sons of thunder. They got this name, sons of thunder, not because they were pushover wimps. These were tough guy fishermen, worked with their hands day in and day out with their dad, their father, Zebedee. Jesus showed up uh, at the beginning of Mark's gospel and calls them out and says, I want you to quit your job and I want you to come follow me. And they do. Okay. It's like, Jesus, did you know what you were getting when you got these guys? And yes, he did. He spent a night in prayer before and the father's like, get those two brothers, which would have been a fun prayer to pray. Not so fun to get the answer going, oh, really? I wasn't really thinking about the guys that are notorious for calling down fire on the Samaritans and getting into bar fights or whatever they would get into. These were rough dudes. These were not choir boys. These were rough dudes. James and John start walking with Jesus, and they're about three years into their discipleship with Jesus. They come up to him, and they say, Jesus, teach, and they don't call him by his name. They call him rabbi, so they instantly put on a title of honor, rabbi. We want you to do for us whatever uh, we ask you, (laughs) which is essentially, hey, we found this blank check, (laughs) and we want you to sign it, and uh, we'll fill in the amount. It just, you just love that they did this because I, I, some of us are that ridiculous and might actually do that if I were up to you know? So they do it. They ask him, we want you to do whatever we want. First, you have to ask the question, like, this is the audacity of these guys. Why would they, who, who do these people actually think they are to just walk up on Jesus and demand and ask him such an obnoxious request and and to ask it with the boldness and the confidence that he just actually has this innate power to literally do anything like well if you sit down I dare you to do it read the gospel of Mark this week and run one sitting it'll blow your mind and it'll set the context as to why these guys actually have the audacity to make such a ridiculous request Mark chapter one it notice the word authority Jesus teaches with authority not like the scribes and the Pharisees. Mark chapter one, Jesus has the authority to touch uh, a leper and cure leprosy with a physical touch. Uh, Mark chapter two, Jesus has the authority not only to raise a paralytic from his bed, but to also pronounce forgiveness of sin, something only God can do, and he does it. Mark chapter three, Jesus uh, heals a man with a withered hand. Mark chapter four, he tells the parable of the souls. Mark chapter five, he drives out demons. Mark chapter 6, he walks on the water. Mark chapter 6, he feeds 5,000 families. Like on and on it goes. Jesus has this authority not only in teaching, but over the spiritual realm and nature itself. He can literally do anything he wants. So, of course, the sons of thunder walk up and go, Jesus, we want you to do whatever we want because you literally have all the power in the world at your fingertips. Makes sense as to why they would go up and just go for it. And make this bold claim or this bold request. And now we just heard Kendra read the passage. We know 
this is still fairly absurd. We know that they should have said something like, Jesus, we've heard about a lady that lives on the outskirts of town. She doesn't have any family. She's alone. You think maybe we could find her an apartment here in the city? Like, take care. We know that the disciples should have spent their request on someone else, right? Yes. But they don't. But we don't. We want you to do whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? By the way, if you read all of Mark 10, he asks that question again. We don't have time to get into it, but he says it to Bartimaeus too, the blind guy in the next passage. What do you want me to do for you? And Bartimaeus wants to follow. What do you want me to do for you? If Jesus was looking at you today, what would you ask him for? Like seriously. What do you want me to do for you then? (laughs) I got a list. Perhaps we would start with like basic needs and necessities. Like, uh, well, I need money. You got any money? I need health. Can you give me health? I need a new relationship. Can you, can you make that thing work out? I got this thing at work. I got this thing. Whatever the thing is. Maybe we would start with basic needs. But if we have all our basic needs, what would you ask him in Seattle today? If you have your basic needs met, like food, clothes, and shelter, what would you ask him for? Power, fame, influence. That's where these guys were. Their basic needs were already met. That's why they start asking for things like glory. Okay? So, what do you want me to do? Here's what they said. And they said, this is such a big ask. It's amazing. Uh, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and at your left, in your glory. So when you go back to heaven, we'd like to go ahead and reserve our place. Oh, you'd like to come to heaven? That's a nice ask. Where would you like to sit in heaven? Kind of on the throne, I was thinking. Like, right, right up there with you. <laughs> it's like, oh, wow. Okay, so we laugh 2,000 years later in Seattle going, that's just ridiculous. And it is. It's even far more ridiculous in their early Jewish context. They're in an honor-shame culture. It makes sense, though, in an honor-shame culture why they're doing this. Why? You're supposed to avoid people in places of shame at all costs. Of course they're going to ask for a seat of glory and honor. That's what we do. We seek honor. So Jesus, at the end, would you let us sit at your right And at your left hand, we'd like a place of honor. And then Jesus responds, you don't know what you're asking for. (laughs) You don't know what you're asking for. That's a simple enough statement that needs no explanation. The next line does. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized? Are you able to do this? Now, in the Old Testament, the cup is used in two ways. Okay, there's like Psalm 23, verse 5, where it says, um, uh, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. 
my cup overflows. Okay, so there's this picture of a cup of overflowing with wine, right? It's good, it's good, it's prosperity, it's blessing, it's comfort, it's everything, it's provision. It's there, there's a couple of occasions where the cup is used as prosperity. Certainly this is the way that James and John are leaning. Yeah, we can drink that cup. <laughs> that's, that's great. Fill her up. There's this other place, though, both in Isaiah 65 and in Jeremiah, where the cup is not a place of blessing. It's a place of judgment, dread, damnation, penalty, condemnation. It's called the cup of the wrath of God. John writes about it over in Revelation 14. You can read about it there in its New Testament sense, lest you think that in the New Testament, God all of a sudden has no wrath. So it's there too. I say, can you, Jesus says, can you drink this cup? Now, if you trace Jesus, just study Jesus being thirsty. Study a cup in the Gospels. Can you drink this cup? And then in John 19, what does he say? Father, let this cup pass from me. Then, when they crucify Jesus, what's one of his seven sayings? I'm thirsty. So when Jesus drinks, he goes thirsty so that you could come and drink of him and have your soul quenched. Can you drink this cup? And they foolishly reply, yeah, of course. Can you be baptized with the baptism that I'll be baptized with? Yeah. The baptism by the way, Jesus is speaking of their own deaths that they don't know they're going to die eventually because they're going to follow him at all costs. Uh, Josephus, the early Jewish historian, says that uh, James was clubbed and then uh, stoned to death. The New Testament shows us that John was banished and died on the island of Patmos. Their baptisms would not be into comfort and luxury. It would be a baptism into clubbing and banishment. So they say, yeah, we're able. And then uh, he says, the cup you drink, I will, uh, the, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with which I'm baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit in my right and left hand, it's not mine to grant, but it's for those who've been prepared. Okay. So what's he doing there? Well, Jesus does this often. He always is appealing to his father, right? As he is co-equal with God, second member of the Trinity. He teaches us what Drew preached about last week, a life of submission to the Father. You see Jesus doing this often. You see him do it in Matthew's gospel where he says, oh, I don't know when I'm returning. Uh, the Father knows. That's strange. <laughs> uh, or in Acts chapter one, Jesus, is it now that you're gonna establish the kingdom? No, no, that's, that's the Father's job. The, the Father's already determined when he's gonna do that. There's a few of these occasions where Jesus just goes, ah, that's only the Father knows that. This is one of those moments where he goes, I'm not going to determine who sits where in heaven. The Father does. Okay? And when the ten heard it, so here's the other disciples, when they hear it, they began to be indignant or angry with James and John. <laughs> Wouldn't you be? Going, are you serious? You seriously asking to sit at the right hand of God? In are you serious? Come on, man. They become indignant. 
Here's the thing. This is so practical in all your relationships, whether it's at work, with a spouse, with a child, a friend, whatever, neighbor. Here it is. When we stop being servants and start seeking places of glory, it always destroys relationships. We become indignant. We become angry. We become bitter. And why is that? Because competition will destroy a relationship like nothing else. Competition. And competition doesn't just happen just in the out there in the business world. It happens in the in here in the Christian world all the time. In fact, there's nowhere more tempting to compete than within the local church. To be a little bit better than the next guy. A little bit better than that girl. To just have it a little more together with our discipleship. To seek a place of glory. This is why the disciples became indignant angry. You view me as competition? You're really trying to be cutthroat and get to the throne of God? Are you not a disciple with me? Are we not equal in this thing together? Are we not brothers that Jesus taught us to be brothers and sisters? You're not doing it, man. You're treating me like a stranger. You're treating me like competition. You're treating me like I'm your enemy. You want your relationships to thrive? Jesus is showing you right here. Be the best foot washer in the room. Find a way to stoop lower. Find a way to stomach your pride. Embrace humility and watch your relationships pop and shine and flourish. It's in that stuff. It's not in the competition. In fact, go back to the last time you were most miserable with your friend or a spouse or a coworker. It's probably because somewhere along the way we exchanged laughing and serving each other for a place of competition and self-centeredness. When we practice spiritual disciplines, we're doing it because in the discipline, we're becoming free. We're not going into prison. We're walking out of jail. That's what all these disciplines are designed to do. But it does come at a cost. Self-denial. Okay. So they began to be indignant at James and John, and Jesus called them to him and said to them, so now he huddles all 12 of the boys together. Okay, you know, and watch, you've got to mark your Bible in this. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. This is so important. Watch, Jesus does this us-them language, and he almost never does that. Usually throughout the Gospel of Mark, you'll see uh, there's insiders and outsiders, clean and unclean, and Jesus is always bringing the unclean in. Now, in a moment, a private huddle with his disciples, he does an us-they, and he introduces his kingdom, and it's powerful. All of a sudden, he goes, oh, yeah, 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 the world has a kingdom, and this is how they do it. It's them, and then here's how we do it in here. It's us. And he juxtaposes how his design for the world is and how the world actually naturally operates. And Jesus just, it's, it's unbelievable. Just to grasp, just to let that sink in. There is an us and they. The Gentiles, those out there, those that don't know God, they do it this way. When it comes to power, when it comes to authority, they are rude, 
They're selfish. They're unkind. They like to be called boss. They want everybody on their feet when they walk in the room. They're selfish. They're self-centered. They don't mind running over people. They don't actually feel for anyone around them. They just hurt people. They talk down to people. They belittle people. They love to just dump shame or guilt or fear or manipulate people. He's like, that's how they do it. That's how they do it. It's an us and them at this point with Jesus. That's how they do it. It's not supposed to be this way among you. And in fact, the Greek right there is so important to catch. It's not what I just said. It's not supposed to be this way. The Greek literally is this. It is not that way in here. It is not. It is not that way. In the kingdom of God, when those who actually understand the gospel, it is not. It is not. You cannot have this power-hungry, lorded-over-you attitude and still say you belong to the kingdom. Jesus like, that's not it. That's not, that's not an us. That's a they. Like, wow. He's making it so clear. It is not that way in the kingdom. I just love that he's clear. That way you can call a spade a spade. When you see power hungry, when you see domineering, when you see ugliness in places of leadership, there's a way to go, oh, that's a they. That's not an us. The king has brought us low. The king has brought us to a place of humility. The king has brought us to a place where your needs come before mine, your interests come before mine, your, your, the necessity of your life, that becomes a priority in my life now. It, that's, how, that's how the us does it. Isn't this so attractive? to have a community committed to that that's amazing that's why it's called good news that it's not just a theory that we do in our head between a private existential relationship with me and God and I'm spiritual but not religious thing that's not attractive here's what's attractive a God who loves us gave his son to die for us and then brought us together and now your needs come before mine and mine come before yours what is that that's jesus flipping the world on its head and going this is how it's meant to be this is how it was in genesis chapter one right now we're living in genesis chapter three and it's all flipped upside down in deception where we think we are the center and jesus is redirecting right so then last thing he says It shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must become slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Okay. You want to understand how Jesus began to articulate his own death, as he's about to go to his cross, he describes it as an act of service. Not just sacrifice, though it is. Jesus understood his life and his goal and his mission was to not just create a community of servants, but to be the leader of the servants. That's so attractive. Name another God like this. They're not out there. Other religions, the gods say something to the effect of just Try harder, do more, pray more, give more, do something else. Please me, tip the scale before my throne at the end. It might go okay for you, maybe not. Better try hard, better white knuckle it, better do more. But in the gospel, Jesus comes down and doesn't just come down and be like, well, I'll just be king. Nope, well, I'll be vice president. 
Nope. Jesus keeps stooping all the way down to the level of a slave. And then when he dies, he dies a slave's death. He kept digging deeper and deeper and deeper, and it becomes foolish and more and more foolish and more and more foolish. Why are you giving your life away for these people? What are you doing? And he says, because I'm a servant. And then he takes his life up again in triumph and creates a community of people who are happy when we're serving. How does that work? (laughs) By his spirit and by actually allowing the gospel, the penny to drop and to change us from within. So when we think about serving, and we're not thinking purely in just simple little tasks that we can sign up for and tick off. We're talking about an identity change that is requiring daily discipline, daily reminder. Oh, that's right, I'm a servant today. Oh, I'm a servant today. I'm a servant today. And believing that on the other side of your serving, there's actually more joy in giving than in receiving. I can't explain why it works that way. I wish I could. (laughs) Because my nature says, no, I'm happier when I'm receiving. But that would be my sinful nature. (laughs) So, I've completely skipped all my notes, so you're welcome. We're just about done. Um, So it's important to know the difference between choosing to serve and choosing to become a servant. Um, So what do you do? Here it is. What do you do when you don't feel like serving? I mean, the reality is, is none of us are going to stumble into an opportunity to serve later today and go, cool, I feel like that. It's not going to strike you tomorrow. If you think like, well, at some point, when the feeling hits me (laughs) and the mood is right, I'll probably be a great servant. (laughs) You're lying to yourself. It's never going to happen. You know why? Because we've all been here about 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years, and uh, that's never happened. Has it happened to any of you where you're like, yeah, I'm ready. I woke up today ready to serve. I'm excited about that. I'm a servant. No. No. That's why we call it a discipline rather than just some vague spirituality. So what do you do when you don't want to serve? Here, Jesus anchored it for you in the verse 45. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. If you sit long enough with a serving Jesus who dies for you, who died for you, gave his life, not money, you weren't like Peter, you weren't bought with silver and gold, precious. You were bought with the cost of the Son of God. And let that drip in, just in, down from your brain, down into your heart for a moment. You go, okay, well, I want to. I, I want to. And the gospel is not about this outward conformity, serve more. It's about this inward transforming power that happens when we believe the gospel, receive the spirit, it transforms us from the inside out. And that, that all of a sudden becomes acts of sacrifice and serving that God finds pleasing. Go read Romans 12. Um, Lastly, in reminding ourselves that it is in dying to ourselves and in serving others that we actually do make a difference in this world even when, and especially when, nobody says thank you.
There's a lot of places in this world where you're going to serve, and you're not going to get a thank you. It'll happen at home every day. <laughs> it happens in the workplace every day. It happens everywhere. And serving becomes worship when it's done anyway, knowing that there's not a thank you on the other side. And after all, when our identity is grounded in being a servant, rather than seeking glory, we're not doing so for a thank you from men. We're doing so because the approval of God already rests on us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the good news of Jesus and the gospel. Thank you that you are present with us here and now. Father, as we seek to become servants and not just merely sign up for tasks to do, but truly to, to adopt a servanthood lifestyle, would you help us be very practical in seeking to cultivate this discipline? Would you help us put reminders in front of ourselves Reminders on our phones, reminders in our car that we are servants and that it's in the giving that we receive. Holy Spirit, would you work deeply, not only in us as individuals, but us as a church. And we pray that our church would find real joy, not just in signing up for acts of one-off serving, but in becoming true servants in every area of our lives as we keep our eyes on you, Jesus. We pray all of this in your good name. Amen.